Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week, we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Hello, this is Joanne Perry, your host today for Everyday Nonviolence Podcast, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. We are really lucky today. We have Ms. Rebecca Slaby, who is the executive director of an organization in St. Paul called AmazeWorks, capital A-M-A-Z-E, lowercase works, dot org, which champions safety and belonging for all children and all families. I glanced at your website and have spoken to you a little bit, but I think it would be lovely for you to explain to us a little bit about what AmazeWorks does its history, and what excites you about it. Well, thanks so much, Joanne. I'm really excited to be here and to share with you and your audience about what I do, what AmazeWorks does. We were started over 23 years ago in a Minneapolis public school over a hate incident. Uh, There was a little girl who was in second grade who had a birthday, and because she had two lesbian moms, one of the birthday cards that came home from a classmate of hers was a hate message. It said, I hate you, girl lover. And of course, everyone was upset, and two mothers brought the note back to the school and said, what do we do about this? And the school said, let's make this a teachable moment. Let's use stories and picture books to expose children to different family structures. And that is how our elementary curriculum, which became Families All Matter, was born. And what we do as an organization that is trying to champion safety, equity, and belonging for all is we provide anti-bias curriculum tools, training resources for schools and also other nonprofits and businesses. We have a variety of curriculum to early childhood and elementary and a newly piloted secondary curriculum, as well as a classroom dynamics program that looks at the social dynamics of a classroom from the perspective of children. So basically, AmazeWorks is teaching the teacher how to teach anti-bias material. Is that what Right. We really want everybody, everybody, not just educators, but also children and communities and other businesses and nonprofits that we work with to adopt an anti-bias mindset. In terms of education, we want teachers to infuse that mindset into everything that they do, whether or not they're using our curriculum, which came out of the work of Louise Derman Sparks and Julie Olson Edwards in early childhood. And that's interesting because people always ask, can you have conversations about race and gender and other differences with 
young children, you know, two, three, four-year-olds, absolutely you can and you should. And from our perspective, the way that we use anti-bias education is building empathy and understanding for others, thinking about a healthy, complex identity and how your identity develops, respect across differences, and notice naming and rejecting bias. And the rejecting part is taking action. What are we gonna do to take action against bias? I've asked you what excited you about it. Your face is very animated, but if all these lovely things that you're working on, what's the one that pulls you the most? I think it's the personal connection to this work. So I am a Korean American adoptee raised by a white family in predominantly white communities. And when I think about anti-bias education is really that reflective inner work that every person has to do on understanding their own identity, thinking about their own differences and how they think about other people's differences, and then what to do with bias. I look at my own life and I really see how I could have used that work. I could have... Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. You know, I grew up wanting to be white, frankly. I struggled with accepting my own Korean ethnic heritage and really wanted to be Meg Ryan from When Harry Met Sally. And I have a great sixth grade picture of me with a perm because I wanted to look exactly like Meg Ryan. I always thought if I had blonde hair and blue eyes, my life would be better. I had other Korean American friends growing up who were not adopted, but because this is how identity and respecting differences intersect, and because I couldn't respect my own ethnic racial differences, I couldn't really respect the differences of my Korean American friends who seemed very foreign to me. Their houses smelled like kimchi and they had to go to Korean school on Sunday. And I just, I didn't want to be associated as being like them, right? I wanted to be more like my blonde haired friends. And I used to think it was a compliment when people would say, oh, I don't think of you as Asian at all. You know, it was like, great, I pass. And so the work is very personal for me on that level, as well as I was a teacher for 15 years and I taught middle school social studies and humanities. And I saw how identity and difference and bias played out in the lives of my students on a daily basis, whether they were internalizing negative messages about themselves or playing out stereotypes that they have learned from society. I was going to ask you what drew you to this work, but you've already told us. What made you decide to come forward and make life different for other people? You decided to become a teacher. You decided to focus on racial bias and, well, actually cultural bias as much as racial bias. What drove you to that? When I graduated from college, I always thought I would do something in social justice, whether it was community organizing, which I did for a little bit, or I thought eventually I'd get into social work, 
And I realized that for me, social work was more reactive and I wanted to be more proactive. Mm -hmm. Working with children in education really seemed a way if I could help shape them and help them develop into thoughtful, critical thinking, problem solving people who could see each other's humanity, right? Then the world would be a better place. I always feel like I had a social justice equity lens on my teaching. I taught at Friends School of Minnesota, which is a K through eight Quaker school in St. In Paul. Uh, I taught middle school humanities there for 10 years, but I was also the diversity coordinator for several years there, trying to infuse equity into all the different layers of the school. And it was from that work that I realized I wanted to do this more full-time and teach teachers and work with teachers. And that's how Amaze came to me. Uh, you're an educator who helps people grapple with the ways that we've all been socialized into biases that we aren't even aware of. Basically the foundation of how we live, breathe, and think. I've been thinking about this idea of how you can distinguish in your own head and your own heart what is coming out of your own preconceived notions and what is not and what is a bias. I know that you teach how to do the daily inner work of becoming aware of these biases so we can avoid them sneaking into the way we relate to other people and I would guess to ourselves and into our decision-making process. What do we each need to do to uncover these unconscious biases so that we can actually change them, assuming, of course, we want to change them. <laughs> that is the important assumption. I think one thing is to really do that internal reflection work first. Oftentimes, we'll get schools and other organizations coming to us and saying, well, we really want to diversify our staff. We really want to diversify our student population. How do we do that? And I always try to reflect back at them and say, well, have you done the internal work first around what that means for you as a person who has to interact with a diverse staff? Oftentimes, I think people, and I should say specifically white people, want color diversity, but they don't actually want cultural diversity because cultural diversity means that you yourself have to change in order to make room for different cultural ways of being. Doing that reflective work around your own identity and your own differences really makes room then to understand how biases play out in your own life. Would it be different uh, for an institution looking at its motivation behind uh, anti-bias education? Is it that much different than an individual working on themselves, or is it the same thing? That's a great question. You know, individuals make up an institution, and so you need to create that sea change, that cultural change within a staff, whether it's teachers or corporate executives. There has to be a critical mass of people who are ready to do that reflective work to do that change for themselves because then they will start to see the world differently. They will start to see how the structural inequalities 
not just around race, but gender and sexual orientation and age and ability, their frame of reference and their lens on the world changes. And that then creates, can create some structural institutional changes because then you have enough people within a given community who want to make things different. I can see why an employer would want to bring in other people to help with the training. I, I can see that if I were an employer and I wanted a racially diverse, culturally diverse staff, what I would do is start hiring. But that's a top-down decision, and you are talking from the inside out. Because what happens when you have people of color, indigenous people, people who are culturally different from the dominant norm, and I don't necessarily mean ethnically culturally different, when you have them enter into an environment where people haven't done that internal work around identity difference and bias, those outside people are not going to stay. Right? They're not going to feel belonging, and that's what we do at Amaze is help people create belonging. There is a difference between inclusion and belonging. It used to be diversity and multiculturalism and tolerance, and we've moved past tolerance and everyone's talking about inclusion because you don't want to just be tolerated, but you also just don't want to be included. Inclusion is this idea that you get to come into my space, I will include you in my space on my terms. Belonging is you get to be who you are, I get to be who I am, and we create the space together. And you can only do that when everybody's willing to change because they've all done that internal work. So we've talked that we have to find some of our unconscious bias to move forward. I'm delighted and scared to hear about how one actually does that. Absolutely. So one, recognizing that we all have biases mm -hmm. and having bias is normal because our brains take in over 11 million bits of information at any given moment. We only retain 40 bits of that information at any given moment. So our brains are automatically categorizing everything that we're doing. It's sorting people and things and places. And we are evolutionarily coded to see difference as survival. That's good. Eat that. Don't eat that. Or don't go near that. That's dangerous. So we have that flight, fight, freeze instinct in us. Mm -hmm. And that instinct kicks into gear when we experience differences that we're not accustomed to. So when we think about uncovering biases, we have to have the awareness and the acceptance that we have biases and that we've been socialized into a certain way of looking at the world. So basically, we have to accept that you have predetermined ways of looking at stuff. Exactly. Okay. I have this example that I like to share in that, you know, even in doing this work, right, I am constantly uncovering my own biases and trying not to act on them. I went into a school a year ago, and I had not met with the principal or assistant principal before, and I knew that one was a man and one was a woman, and I, in my head, just assumed that the principal was the man. That's just where my brain went, so I met them, and principal was this strong, powerful, wonderful woman, 
and I had to do a double take and check my biases. Mm -hmm. Good. That's a very nice example. You have mentioned in previous conversations things about social identity versus personal identity. Can you let us know what the difference actually is? Sure. Personal identity are all the things that make us unique. Our talents, our skills, our character traits. Are we an introvert or an extrovert? Do we like to garden or run or surf or <laughs> go to movies? In schools, we do a really good job of developing our children's personal identities. Usually at the beginning of the year, almost in every grade in elementary school, there's some sort of who am I or identity unit. Social identities, however, have to do with the social categories that society places us in, often without our control, that are, are created to keep some groups on top and some groups on the bottom. So we're talking about race and ethnicity, age, gender, sexual orientation, ability, education level, class. They're often the things that society judges us on and that we have no control over. And we don't do a very good job in schools of developing those social identities in a way that allows kids to express their social identities fully and be affirmed for them. So if we're thinking about a racial or cultural or ethnic identity, how much are we asking our kids to assimilate into whiteness versus being able to express themselves and be who they are racially, ethnically, culturally? Could you give a theoretical example of that? Let's say African-American, two years old, first generation from a different country. And he's got white folks in the family as well and all sorts of other differences. And how would schools be able to help him with an identity? One thing is that we shouldn't be teaching colorblindness. Mm -hmm. We want to teach that we're all equal, right? We want to teach that we should not treat each other differently because of our differences. But oftentimes that just gets smoothed over as in a blanket we don't see difference, we don't treat each other differently, when in reality we absolutely see difference and we're always making biased decisions that are unconscious in how we treat each other based on what we see. And so, one, making sure that there are enough positive role models. We talk in education and Adam May's works around windows and mirrors. He needs to have enough mirrors in the classroom, in the school community to see himself positively reflected in the curriculum, in the posters on the walls, in speakers and field trips and all the different things that they're doing at school. He needs to see positive representations. People that look like him? People that look like him. And that's something that I never had. There was never any talk about Asian American culture, Korean American culture, transracially adopted culture, nothing, nothing like that, except for the heroes in holidays, United Nations, here we're going to learn about a country, oh, you pick Korea, and now I can draw the Korean flag really, really well. <laughs> and so he needs to have enough mirrors, as well as windows. The other kids need to have windows so that they can see his lived experience, his identity as normal. 
And yet we want to know that he's different and that the white dominant mainstream world might see him as different. And that's normal. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's good to have that imagery of windows and mirrors. Mm-hmm. Anything else about how we would actually look at our own biases? There is some really great work out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Patricia Devine has done some research on de-biasing. How do we de-bias ourselves? And there are some real de-biasing techniques. One of them is mindfulness. And that is because we often act or react without thinking. And mindfulness and taking that step back to catch ourselves before we act on a bias is really important. So because I was aware and thinking about biases in my principal example, I had enough awareness and mindfulness to not say something that would have revealed my bias. And there are some things like counter-stereotyping that we can do to challenge our own biases. And what does that mean, please? Counter-stereotyping is what is our normal, perhaps biased image that we have around any particular group. So let's take Asian women. I'm an Asian woman. So what are the stereotypes, the biases, positive or negative, that we have about Asian women? And let's come up with some counter images that might go against whatever those stereotypical images are. Asian women oftentimes can be exoticized or seen as docile or obedient or quiet. Let's think about an Asian American CEO. Let's think about an Asian American female rock star. So you talked about substitution. What did you call that again? Counter-stereotyping, where we're making a positive association with a negative stereotype of a group. And how would that work? So, for example, there are lots of negative stereotypes about young black males as dangerous criminals. But we can actively start to think about positive associations. So when we have an image of a young black male in our head, Whenever we see a black male, say, safe, say, kind, we then associate positive words with that group. Whenever we see a person who represents that group, it's an automatic word association that's positive. And I think it actually sticks on. Absolutely. Maybe you can give us one, maybe two more things that you would reinforce in your teachers that are teaching students about biases and how we personally can look at and overcome our own. One thing that teachers often struggle with is getting stuck in guilt and shame. And I'll say specifically white teachers. If we think about the majority white teaching population, in Minnesota, teaching an increasingly culturally, racially, ethnically diverse student population. What is the cultural lens that they're coming to their jobs with, their biases and their own identities? And then when we kind of peel back those layers and and expose some of that, teachers get really stuck in guilt and shame spirals. 
And oftentimes that can lead to anger and sometimes blaming the victim, blaming the parents for not raising the child a certain way, blaming trauma, blaming, you know, the kid's lazy, the kid is too difficult, or passing those children along into special ed or trying to get them out of the classroom. And how are student behaviors triggering our biases as educators? We need to be mindful about what we expect of different groups of students. Are we expecting all groups of students, again, to assimilate into white cultural norms, which can often be synonymous with sitting in your seat, being quiet, raising your hand, taking turns, head down, doing your work, Whereas there are many communities that are a lot more collaborative and verbal and public in how they create knowledge for themselves and want to explore, and are we punishing them instead of adapting ourselves to meet their needs? Can you ever be perfect? You absolutely can never be perfect. And you know, the thing about having that anti-bias mindset and doing equity work is that there is no end point. There is no done. There's no final destination. We can't take a training or do a workshop or read a book and then check that box and say, okay, I get it now. I'm woke enough. There is always more because we need to continually try to see each other's humanity. When we are bombarded with messages that try to erase each other's humanity, it is a constant battle within ourselves to not give in to those things. And I, I look back at my teaching career and having moved forward in my journey of my own self-awareness, my own reflection, my own understanding of bias and how that works in the world, and my complicity in perpetuating systems of oppression and racism. And I definitely look back with shame and guilt on the students that I failed. And they are a reminder for me of why I need to do this work and why I can't stay in that place of shame and guilt. We have to figure out a way to move forward from that. And there is something called white identity development models. There's this phase that comes for white folks where as they start to realize that the world as they have seen and understood it is not the way the world is experienced by many folks. There's kind of this fork in the road where either people retreat and kind of stick their head in the sand and get angry and get defensive and don't do any more work, or they continue on the path. And we need to figure out how to live in that discomfort, that cognitive dissonance of what I know and understand is not actually what's really happening around race and racism and systems of oppression. People of color and indigenous folks People with marginalized identities, LGBTQ folks, queer folks, people who are disabled, living with disabilities or mental health issues, they're experiencing that discomfort on a daily basis, trying to navigate in these dominant norms and this dominant culture that has not made any room for them. So it's okay for white folks to experience discomfort and get used to it and learn how to move through it. 
So you've, you've talked about understanding unconscious bias, social identity versus personal identity, mindfulness, using techniques of counter-stereotyping to challenge our own biases, and other active choices we make on a daily basis. And I'm very grateful you point out there's no point where we are done. Mm-hmm. This is always ongoing. Mm-hmm. You know, in education, there's a thing called a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. We want kids to have a growth mindset and know that their brains are malleable and ever-changing and that just because they can't do something right now doesn't mean that they can't do something later. As adults, we need to have that growth mindset around equity work, knowing that we're never finished and that experiencing the discomfort as we become more aware of other people's experiences in the world is okay. Okay. Can you say more about how this internal work can play out in our outer lives, in our neighborhoods, our schools, (laughs) our family? It's those personal conversations that I think are the hardest because we are experiencing things like microaggressions or perpetuating microaggressions all the time. And microaggressions are those slights, those daily insults. Sometimes they're the backhanded compliments or they're couched as jokes, but they're actually meant to belittle or deny the humanity of someone based on a social identity. What comes to mind is when I was a kid, it was, oh, you're so smart, you think like a man. (laughs) Yes. And then you think about what's the hidden message there? The hidden message is because you're a female, you wouldn't be expected to be smart, so you're an outlier, and that's a good thing, but that's not normal for females. For me, it is, oh, you speak such good English, even though I was raised here and I don't speak Korean, (laughs) or it is, where are you from? Well, I'll give my whole, I moved around a lot when I was a kid and all those things. No, where are you really from? As though Asians are this perpetual foreigner, we could never actually be from America. What they really mean to say is, what's your ethnic heritage? And also, the assumption is that, oh, I get to know that about you. That's something that I should just know. I don't go around asking white folks all the time, where are you from? Where are your people from? What's your ethnic heritage? It's that assumption of who belongs and who doesn't. That's pretty clear. Yeah. And microaggressions happen around all different identities. And so how do we recognize and stop those microaggressions, because those are the things that come in between our really getting to see each other. We're losing out on the relationships that we can have with each other because we have put people in boxes. And when we perpetuate microaggressions, it kind of just puts this wall between people from a person who's received many microaggressions. If someone were to say something to me, it's not that I would hold it against them for the rest of their lives necessarily. I might. But also I realize, oh, even if it's a friend, we can only go so far in our friendship because I don't feel safe with them in certain parts of my identity. And for the person who said that, They lose out on a dynamic relationship where we can see each other's full humanity. 
embrace each other's differences, learn from them, understand how they help us be better people and have a broader, more vibrant, beautiful perspective on the world. So in terms of microaggressions, or in general, when people say hurtful things to you, one technique that we teach teachers or adults in general is to say, ouch. A simple ouch interrupts that moment. It allows for that space that we all need for mindfulness and and awareness. Mm -hmm. And then asking questions or responding in a way that is, hey, when you said that, I felt this. Or when you said that, this is how it landed on me. Is that what you meant? Or I heard you say, and kind of reflecting back and summarizing, is that what you mean to say? We can interrupt and use questioning or reflecting back to give that person some space with grace to either explain or rephrase or just let them know that wasn't okay to say. And what we teach for the other person is when you, if someone says ouch to you, say thank you. Thank you for letting me know that I said something that hurt you. Because I really believe we want to be in relationship with each other. You know, if we're in a work environment or at school or in our families, we want to be in relationship with each other. And so thank you for telling me something I did that hurt you so I can change. I don't want to do that again. Right? So ouch and thank you. I really like the thought there's a responsibility on both people's part. Absolutely. And and I hope it would bring us closer. So it's a great idea. Um, Ways that schools can use the strengths and the assets of various cultures, especially when talking about making this inner work work in the outer world. There's lots of books and research around being culturally responsive and using culturally responsive teaching practices. And frankly, they're just best practices in teaching. It is how we use a variety of teaching strategies to meet the needs of all of our students. It is how we invite them to share who they are in the classroom and also share who we are with them. It is how we use the things that they're interested in and what they're bringing to school, their ideas, their own background, right? How can we build on those things instead of, oh, no, you leave that at the door. Now I'm going to teach you a certain way of thinking and being and doing. There needs to be more of this collaborative give and take relationship between teachers and students instead of this sage on a stage where I am going to impart my knowledge onto you, child. We need to invite them as in as learning partners with us um, that is truly being culturally responsive because, again, it's, it's who they are as individuals in all of their identities. Many teachers are uncomfortable with that because they have less control. They don't know what it's going to be because they're not the only ones deciding how to learn something. Um, but it can be a very powerful way to reach students and keep them engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, is teachers need to, and I know for sure I had this 
mentality when I first started teaching, the savior mentality. I'm going to come in and I'm going to save all these kids who are struggling for whatever reason. We have to let go of that and see the strengths and the wonderful things that they're bringing to school and partner with them. I guess I want to ask, have there been any personal aha moments on your path here? So at Friends School, there were quite a few transracially adopted students who had white parents. And I was able to connect with them because I shared my own adoption experience. And I was very open and honest with them around how I grappled with my identity. You know, I taught language arts, and so we would do creative writing, and we did I Am From poems, and I would share my own I Am From poem and and talked about my own identity in that way. And then I would have parents say to me how grateful they were that their child had a teacher who was adopted and who shared and talked about it. I think it was really important. And I look back on my own childhood. Oh, I wish I'd had a teacher who had shared any of those kinds of experiences and perspectives with me. It speaks to how we build those relationships with our kids around identity difference and bias and that anti-bias mindset, but it also speaks to the importance of diversifying our teaching workforce because our kids need to see those positive role models in their teachers. They need to have that mirror for them. Teaching matters to so many people for a lifetime. It really matters, so I'm glad you're doing this work. You've talked about your passion, and you've talked about where we need to show up and how you would recommend people showing up. But what keeps you going in this work? My children keep me going. And the children that I worked with, uh, they gave me so much hope for the future. I would help them write their eighth grade graduation speeches. And it made me so excited that these amazing people who cared about social justice who cared about making a difference for growing up and going out into the world. But I have a nine-year-old and a 14-year-old, and I see the way the world is different for them already. My oldest daughter has alopecia, which is an autoimmune disease that makes your hair fall out. So she's bald, and she's always been bald since she was a baby. Uh, and that's pretty hard. It has really shaped how she shows up in the world. People make a lot of assumptions about her, particularly that she has cancer mm -hmm. or that she's a boy. And at the same time, partially because I think she was at friend's school and they have such a great emphasis on equity and justice and seeing who you are as an individual, she's not really been ever teased or have had kids say mean things to her. And I really think that that speaks to how our kids are growing up with a much bigger and broader understanding of the world and are way more accepting of all the ways in which diversity shows up. And in terms of like gender identity, we talk all the time around and not making assumptions about gender. And 
both of them check me all the time. You know, we talk about the tooth fairy with my nine-year-old. Let's not assume the tooth fairy is a, a female. She could be a male or she could be non-binary mom. <laughs> and that's just normal for them. And that keeps me going. That gives me hope. And the work that we do with teachers and our curriculum when they use it in schools, I'm really just hoping that that empathy that understanding of identity and difference and bias grows and helps them create a better world for us all. Thank you. Friends for Nonviolent World, FNBW, produces these podcasts to highlight ways that individuals can help create a world free of violence and the threat of violence. We also do them because people with passion can find a path so that they can live the lives that they want to live. And it seems to me you have done a remarkably good job at that. Are there one or two things that you would highlight to listeners that they can do in their own lives? Do you have a suggestion or ideas what they might be? I think starting just reading. Read, 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 read. There are so many great books and blogs or actually podcasts, right? There are so many great resources out there for people to learn about the way that other people who are different from them experience the world. We need to have that empathy. We need to stop othering people. So definitely learning, reading, listening, watching documentaries, all of that is important. And then the other thing I would say is to really seek out experiences where you are in the minority. If you are a white person, if you have a dominant gender or dominant sexual orientation or dominant privileged identities, go seek out spaces where you will be in the minority. Experience that and build relationships with people who have different lived experiences and identities. Thank you very much. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I want to know, if, other than going to amazeworks.org and the programs it offers, it's a very bright and beautiful website. Is there any other resources you would recommend or any other way we could get hold of you? You can always email me at rebecca at amazeworks.org. For parents and for educators, there's a book that I'm currently reading called Raising White Children by Jennifer Harvey. There's another book that is good for thinking about how you have conversations and how you can frame your understanding of race differently. It's So You Want to Talk About Race. And then there's another book called How to Be Anti-Racist. Again, thank you. This has been Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. Thank you all for listening to us. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.